Well, good evening. You would think that I would love Indian food, and I do, but I really do love Mexican food. I've never met a chip that I do not like. <laughs> so last semester, when I shared with you from God's Word, I told you that I was born and raised in the New York, New Jersey area, and that by all accounts, I am shamelessly proud to be a Jersey girl. And see, I've only lived in three places my entire life. I've obviously the New York, New Jersey area, now here in Dallas, but I've also lived in the city of Calcutta. And Calcutta is located in the northeast part of India. It's the third largest city in India, and it's a beautiful city, full of history and art, culture and architecture, and poverty. A kind of poverty that we here in the West have no concept of. Men, women, and children live and die on the streets every single day, and no one even blinks. And right after I graduated college in 1997, I went on a missions trip to Calcutta for six weeks. And the following year, I returned for three weeks. And then in 2000, I quit my job and I moved there to serve as a missionary for six months. Now, the city of Calcutta is known for many things, and most notably for its most famous missionary. And it's not me. <laughs> I'm famous here, but not really anywhere else. <laughs> it's Mother Teresa. At the age of 18, Mother Teresa moved to India, and she first served as a headmistress of a boarding school there. But soon she felt God calling her to serve the poorest of the poor. She called it a call within a call. And so this tiny Albanian nun went into the worst slums of Calcutta, places that you and I would never even think of entering into. And she provided the needy with food and medical care. She opened up a home for the sick and the dying. She took in children who were simply left out on the streets to fend for themselves. Mother Teresa significantly impacted the world through her simple acts of love. Now, I have a bit of a personal connection with Mother Teresa. The reason I went to Calcutta on those three mission trips is because my uncle, Vijayan Pavamani, was a missionary in Calcutta, and he worked very closely with Mother Teresa. They were really good friends, and both of them worked to serve the people of the city. And, you know, while I call him my uncle, my confession that I must make to you is that he's actually not. See, let me tell you how Indians roll. You need to understand a little bit about the Indian culture to, under, to, to get this. So India is a country comprised of some 29 states and some seven union territories. And each one of those states has its own culture, most often its own language. And so if you get two Indians in a room and you give them five minutes, and especially if they're from the same state, they will try to figure out a way that they're related. And if they cannot do that perhaps they're from different states, they will come up with 10 people that they know in common. And then, by the end of it, they're practically family, or at least they're BFFs. <laughs> now, that's sort of a generalization, but it's really true. What I love about my cultural heritage is this great sense of community and family that I grew up with. See, I'm not just the daughter of my parents. I'm the daughter of an entire community. And while we value community and family, we also value honoring and respecting our elders. And so if I met uh, someone who was old enough to be my father or mother, I would never call them by their first name. 
I wouldn't even call them Mr. or Mrs. I would call them uncle or auntie. And so uh, the way Indian languages work, you, you actually put that term on the back end. So in the West, we would say uncle Vijayan. But in the Indian culture, you say Vijayan uncle. So Vijayan uncle and his wife Premila auntie are my parents' oldest and dearest friends. So they're like family to us. And over the years, especially during my time in Calcutta, he became like a father to me. He is by far one of the greatest influences of my life. I know Jesus better today because I knew Vijay and Pavamani. Soon after he graduated college, my uncle felt the Lord calling him into ministry. And so he went to work as a director for Youth for Christ, which is a parish church organization that uh, works with uh, young people. But soon, he and his wife felt the Lord calling them into a place of deeper trust. You see, my uncle, like Mother Teresa, had seen the poverty, the utter despair, the brokenness that surrounded the people of Calcutta, and he knew God was calling him to do something about it. He could not just stand by and watch people live and die on the streets as if they were animals. So in 1971, he took a simple act, he made a simple act of a step of faith. And he and his wife took out an ad in a newspaper. And it simply said this, if you're in trouble or if you need help, call this number or come to this address. And they listed their home, phone number, and address. And the next day, they were overwhelmed to find 60 people lined up at their doorstep from various social classes. And to the surprise of this young couple, many of them went away helped and comforted just by simply offering a listening ear and a cup of tea. And they, some of them even returned the next day to volunteer their services to those in need. And from these humble beginnings emerged the Calcutta Samaritans, a counseling center that has grown tremendously through the years. In 1978, they founded the first residential drug and alcohol center in all of India. And then later on that year, they opened up the Calcutta Emanuel School, a free school for the poorest children for whom education is not an option. As the years went on, they began projects to fight poverty and social injustice, projects such as community development programs, an AIDS hospice, an orphanage, a work in the red lights district to rescue those who had been sexually trafficked. On August 20th, 2006, while here in the U.S. speaking at a conference, my uncle suffered a massive heart attack. It was completely unexpected. And within a few days, he passed away from heart failure in a Maryland hospital. His family, his friends, colleagues were devastated by his loss. The city of Calcutta mourned the passing of this man. They honored him at his funeral that was attended by thousands. And the work that he started some 46 years ago continues today, as his wife serves as the executive director of the ministry. Here's the thing about Mother Teresa and my uncle. They were ordinary people. They were. I can tell you that because my uncle often told me stories about Mother Teresa and because I saw how he himself lived day in and day out. They were ordinary people, but they believed in an extraordinary God and they were willing to answer his call and step out in faith. And that's the same thing that Jesus is calling us to. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 14, 22 to 33. And we'll see that this is exactly what we see Peter do in our lesson this week. Matthew 14, 22 to 33. And we're going to take a look at this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Right before this scene, Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle of turning five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And the disciples are in the thick of the action. They're the ones passing out the food. They see up close and personal what Jesus has just done. And then they're, they're tired. They're exhausted from all of this. And so Jesus says, go on ahead to the other side of the lake. And he goes up on this mountain to pray. And a storm begins to batter their boat as the winds beat against the water and toss their fishing boat up and down on the fierce waves. In Mark's account of this very scene, he tells us that the disciples are straining against the oars. This isn't a slight drizzle. Some of these men are experienced fishermen, and all night they're battling the storm just across the Sea of Galilee, which is only five or six miles wide. And after rowing all night, they're only halfway there, maybe two or three miles in. They're in the middle of this aggressive storm. And then Matthew tells us that somewhere in the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus shows up. But he doesn't just show up. He shows up walking on the water. And so the disciples are terrified. They cry out in fear. This must be a ghost. It must be a spirit. And Jesus immediately says to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And Jesus' answer, it is I, in the original language, reads more literally, I am. And by saying this, he is alluding to the divine name of Yahweh. Do you remember the name that God first used to reveal his, himself to Moses and the Israelites way back in Exodus 3? He said, I am who I am. And Jesus here reveals his identity as the son of God, as the great I am. And from this moment of divine revelation, we move into this incredible interaction between Jesus and Peter. And Peter's an ordinary guy. He's not educated. He doesn't have high social standing. He's got no political clout. He's a fisherman. But this is who Jesus chooses to be his disciple. And if you spend any time in church, even if you've never stepped foot in a church, you are somewhat familiar with this story. 
And I've read this story a hundred times. And every time I read it, here's what I saw. Jesus walks on water, and Peter, like this bumbling fool, tries to do what Jesus did, messes it all up, and sinks. But here's what I missed. There's only two men who have ever walked on water, and one of them is the Son of God. Peter's the only man other than Jesus to ever walk on water. The other disciples are sitting in that boat. Peter's the only one who got out of the boat, who took a step of faith. Don't just gloss over that. That's amazing. We can't miss that. And Jesus invites each of us as his followers, as his missionary disciples to do the same. He issues a call and he asks us to step out in faith, to leave our comfort zones. See, real growth only takes place in our lives when we leave our boats, when we leave our comfort zones. And each of us has our own boats. It's centered on our comfort. So for some of us, it's the comfort of family. For others of us, it's the comfort of money or success, career, whatever it is. Your boat is whatever you are placing your safety and your security in apart from Jesus. And Jesus never forces us to obey. He simply calls. But if you want to follow Jesus, you got to get out of the boat. And I think if you're here this evening, you are interested in following Jesus. At least you're considering it. But maybe you're not sure of what that looks like. What does it mean to get out of the boat? What is Jesus calling us to? And why should I even do it? What I love about the Bible is that it answers our questions. And so this evening, we're gonna look at the story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And what we will find is that there are three stages to every get out of the boat experience. Every time we step out in faith, leave our comfort zones. And what we will find is this. If you wanna follow Jesus, you gotta get out of the boat. So here's stage one. In every get out of the boat experience, first, there must be a call from God. Peter is known to be this pretty impulsive guy. He, he often, his inside voice becomes his outside voice. He suffers from foot and mouth disease. He, he has no filter. He speaks and acts without thinking. Yet in this scene, Matthew tells us that Peter doesn't immediately get out of the boat. That's what I would think he would do, but that's not what happens. He first asks Jesus for permission. A better translation of verse 28 might be, Lord, since it's you, order me to come to you on the water. See, I think Matthew gives us this little detail because he wants us to understand that Peter is not the one in control here. Jesus is. Peter can't get out of that boat without uh, Jesus commanding or calling him to do so. See, Jesus isn't looking for us to simply take some big risks for him. He's looking for us to obey him. And there's a huge difference. Sometimes people make impulsive or rash decisions about their jobs or their relationships, and then they mask it with this cloak of religious talk that they felt like this is what the Lord had called them to do. And so it's important for us to discern whether our get-out-of-the-boat moment is truly a call from God. And there's two relationships we need if we're going to discern God's call. We need an intimate relationship with God and we need intimate relationships with other believers. 
If we're going to discern God's call, we need to be in an intimate relationship with God through reading his word and prayer. Now, that seems like a no-brainer, right? Of course, we should be talking to God and hearing from God. But so often, I sit across from people who tell me that they genuinely want to hear from God, but they're not spending any time just being with God. In John 15.5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. We need to be intimately connected to God like branches growing out of a vine through prayer and reading and reflecting on his word. In prayer, we talk to God, but we don't just talk to God, we also listen to him. In a few weeks, we're gonna practice this rhythm of prayer, and so I'm not gonna dive deeply into that because I think we learn best when we experience prayer rather than if I just tell you some things about it. But what I wanna highlight to you this evening is this. Prayer isn't just talking to God. That's often how we think of it. We come to God with all our requests, with everything that's on our mind, and we sort of blurt it out, and then we say amen, and we're done. And while, it, while we should bring our request to God, while God wants to hear what's on our hearts, prayer is so much more than that. It's also listening to God. It means we, we turn our attention and our thoughts toward God. And one way we do that is through reading and reflecting on his word. So both of these rhythms, prayer and reading and reflecting on his word, go hand in hand in the life of a missionary disciple. As we immerse ourselves in God's word, we align our desires and our will with God's. The Bible is a book about God. It's a story about God. And in it, we learn the character and the ways of God. As we spend time reading and reflecting on his word, God speaks to us through particular scriptures that speak directly into our life circumstances. And as we develop this relationship with God through prayer and his word, we're able to discern God's call because we begin to see whether what we feel like God's calling us to do lines up with his character and the counsel of his word. And as we wait patiently on the Lord in prayer, he will answer. Well, we also need intimate relationships with God if we're going to discern, uh, int intimate relationships with other believers if we're going to discern God's call. We have to surround ourselves with godly believers, men and women, and allow ourselves to be truly known by them. In godly community, we allow ourselves to be known, and, and we're transparent, we're vulnerable, we're honest about our sins and our struggles, our hopes and our dreams. And as we discern God's call, we must seek the counsel of mature believers who walk closely with God and who know us deeply. Prior to moving to Dallas two years ago to attend uh, Dallas Seminary, I spent 15 years in corporate finance, 15 years building this career that I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my life at. And then I left it to pursue what I felt like God was calling me to do. And I liked my job. I was even good at my job. But if you ask me, what is it that you do that when you do it, you are most passionate about, you feel most alive, you find the most joy, I would tell you it's when I'm sharing and communicating God's word. But my love and my passion for God and his word wasn't something that was always part of my life. 
I grew up in a Christian home. I lived in church my entire life, but it wasn't until I went to college that God opened the eyes of my heart to see who he was, and he did it through his word. And I fell in love with him. I found him to be beautiful. And I'm still in awe of the fact that God would speak to us through his word, that he would reveal himself through these sacred scriptures. And I have never been the same. I was uh, leading and teaching a Bible study for women, and I knew I needed to be better equipped at handling God's word. But I thought, this is something I'm going to do later on in life when it makes more sense and it's more practical, when it fit better in my schedule. And about four years ago, I, as I spent time with God in prayer and in his word, I knew God was calling me to give up my plans and to follow his. And I knew he was calling me into ministry. And I didn't want to do it. But what helped confirm God's call on my life was talking to godly men and women who loved me and who knew me, who knew how God had gifted me and and the desires of my heart. And as I shared with them God's call on my life, resoundingly, their response was, it's about time. It's about time that you did this. Of course this is God's call for you. See, if you want to discern God's call, you need an intimate relationship with God and you need intimate relationships with other believers. Every get out of the boat experience always starts with a call from God. Both Mother Teresa and my uncle received a call from God. They realized that they were not in control of their lives, and neither are you or I. Just like Peter, we can't just jump out of the boat. If this is going to work, it, it can't be because you or I decided it. It's got to be because Jesus called us to it. So once you've been called by God to get out of the boat, to leave your comfort zone, the second stage is that you take a step of faith. And that's what Peter did. The most amazing verse in this passage, actually it's not even a verse, it's one sentence. And it's one that I have often overlooked. Take a look at verse, the second part of verse 29. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. See, we read that and we're like, oh, whatever, Peter walked on the water, no big deal. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, this is a big deal, right? Peter walked on the water. Jesus said, come, and Peter took a step. We don't know how many steps he took, but Peter, but it was probably more than one. Jesus called and Peter responded. He obeyed. He acted. See, if you want to follow Jesus, you got to get out of the boat. And as we follow Jesus, he's going to ask us to leave our boats, to leave the places where we're comfortable, where we think that we're safe, so that we can follow him into a deeper relationship. If you never get out of the boat, you will never experience walking on water like Peter did. It's not going to happen. Deep, meaningful, rich relationship with Jesus only comes when we get out of the boat. That's where our faith grows, matures, and develops. John Ortberg, pastor and author, says it like this. If I'm going to experience a greater measure of God's power in my life, it will usually involve the first step principle. It will usually begin by my acting in faith, trusting God enough to take a step of obedience. Simply acknowledging information about his power is not enough. I have to get my feet wet. 
So here's how I got my feet wet. Two years ago, at the age of 40, I quit my job, basically my career. I moved halfway across the country, left my family and friends so that I could come here for seminary. Who does that? That's crazy talk, and I knew it was crazy. See, this is not how my life was supposed to turn out. This is not how I planned it. I never thought that I would be 40, single, and an unemployed student. (laughs) But that's what Jesus called me to. And there were people in my life who thought, you have lost your mind. And I wasn't really sure if they were wrong. See, this wasn't an easy decision for me. I'm not a risk taker. And there were a thousand reasons why this decision does not make sense. There's actually only two reasons why it does. Because Jesus called and because Jesus is better. He's better than money. He's better than a career. He's better than comfort. He's better than everything else that kept me in that boat for so very long. And I believe he's called me to this. And so he will see me through it. I'm two years into this particular get-out-of-the-boat experience. I'm going to graduate in May, and I have no idea where this is going to lead. In fact, I'm not even sure it's going to turn out the way I want or the way I had imagined. But I'm believing that God has a plan. See, the message that I'm preaching to you this evening is the one that I need to preach to my own heart almost every single day. Because there are many nights that I wake up and I think to myself, what in the world have I done? Have I just made the biggest mistake of my life? And in that moment, like Peter, I cry out to Jesus. And I say, help my unbelief. I want to love and trust you more than I do in this moment. Would you help me? And he does. If I really believe God is who he says he is, then it's not foolish of me to do what I'm doing. The smartest move I could make is to respond to Jesus' call and take a step of faith. And here's why. It's what Jody taught us a few weeks ago. Jesus is worthy. There's going to be a day that I stand before God, and here's what I want to be able to say. With all that I had, with all that I knew, I followed you. Because you alone are worthy. R.C. Sproul says this, the issue of faith is not so much whether we believe in God, but whether we believe the God we believe in. The issue of faith is not so much whether we believe in God, but whether we believe the God we believe in. Do you believe the God you say you believe in? Then follow him. Peter takes a step of faith, he gets out of that boat, he walks on the water, he sees the wind, he becomes afraid, and he begins to sink. Fear and failure are often associated with taking a step of faith. And many of us view failure as this negative experience, but failure is a learning opportunity. See, we have to stop being afraid of failing because it's in our failures that we grow. And you will likely also experience fear. In in fact, I can almost guarantee that you will experience fear when you take a step of faith. Because obedience is scary. I mean, so many people who God has given such abilities and gifts to, and and he's given them dreams, and they're not doing anything with them. Jesus has called, and they're too afraid to respond. And many of us are waiting for this moment when we will no longer be afraid, and I'm not sure that moment's gonna come. 
You don't have to be fearless to obey. I'm not fearless. In each get out of the boat experience, what Jesus has called us to is far bigger than ourselves. That's why we're afraid. We can't do it on our own, but we don't have to. You and I are ordinary people, but we believe in an extraordinary God, and that's what makes the difference. It isn't the fearless ones who obey. It's the ones who believe and trust their God. It's only when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he began looking at the wind whipping against the waves that he started to sink. See, what makes me take a step of faith and then take a next one is fixing my eyes on Jesus. Jenny Allen, the founder of If Gathering, puts it like this. The opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is faith. And listen, you might fail. I mean, the Bible keeps it real. It's what I love about it, right? You might fail. You might take a step of faith and you might stumble. Things might not work out the way you imagined or the way you wanted. But Jesus is there. He sees you, he hears you, and he's never more than an arm's length away. As soon as Peter begins to sink, he cries out and Jesus catches him. As I think of this scene, I am often reminded of a toddler taking her first steps. I have a 17-year-old niece, her name is Rebecca, and I remember clearly Rebecca's first steps. For a few days, she sort of did that thing where you pull yourself up on the coffee table and she was trying to figure it out. She did that for a few days and then one day she started putting one wobbly, chubby foot in front of the other, trying to balance her head and move her legs at the same time and she took one step and then maybe two or three and then she fell. And you know what her parents did? They went wild. I mean, you would have thought that she just ran a marathon. She took two steps. Like, we're really going to reward this? <laughs> but they did. They were so proud that their baby girl had taken a step, that she had begun to walk. They weren't angry or disappointed that she fell. They were beaming with pride. And I think God is like that with each one of us. As we respond to Jesus' call, take a step of faith. As we get out of that boat, and as we take each wobbly step, sometimes barely able to make the next one, God cheers us on and he says, that's my baby girl. And he beams with pride. And Jesus stands by our side, ready to catch us should we fall. See, I don't think Jesus got angry at Peter for sinking. I think he wanted to teach him an important lesson, one that he would never forget. But I think in his response, he is saying to Peter something like this, Peter, Peter, why would you doubt me? Don't you know I'm here? Trust me, Peter, I've got you. And Peter didn't fail, at least not the way we think of failing. Peter learned what it, what it means to trust Jesus in a way that none of the other disciples had yet experienced. Peter knew what it was like to walk on the water. He felt it beneath his feet. And he also knew what it was like to sink and to feel the arms of Jesus wrapped around him, pulling him up out of the water. And I'm sure he never forgot that. In fact, as we read his later letters, you hear this theme. You hear Peter saying, no matter how bad the circumstances of life, follow Jesus. 
It's the cry of Peter's heart. And I think it all began out there on the water as he took his baby steps with Jesus. Jesus calls and we get out of the boat. We respond and take a step of faith, which often involves fear and sometimes even failure. But Jesus is always by our side. And as we experience him in this deeper way, there's only one response. And that's the third stage of every get out of the boat experience. It always leads to worship. Jesus and Peter get back into the boat and all the disciples worship Jesus for truly they say, you are the son of God. And as we respond to Jesus, as we take that step of faith, we see him work in our lives and do in ways that we could never do on our own. And our understanding of who Jesus is, is enlarged. We experience him in this way that we would not have been able to had we not taken that step of faith, had we not gotten out of the boat. We know him in a deeper way, we see him more clearly, and it leads us to stand in awe of who he is, and it leads us to trust him more. Mother Teresa and Vijay and Pavmani knew Jesus better because they got out of the boat, because they responded to his call and took a step of faith. Their lives were marked by steps of faithful obedience. As I told you, my uncle passed away here in the US in a hospital in Maryland, and I had the great privilege of being with him during his last days. And on one of those days, he and I were alone together in his hospital room. And the next day, he was about to have open heart surgery, and the doctors had told him, we really don't have any other options, there's nothing else we could do for you, and we do not think you will survive this surgery. And so my uncle knew that he was gonna go home to be with Jesus. And I was a little angry about that because I didn't think it was fair. He was too young to leave us. And so I asked him, was following Jesus all these years worth it? Was it worth it? And he responded, Mole, which means daughter, how could I not give my life to the one who gave his life for me? The love of Christ compels me. Follow Jesus, he's worth it. I have never forgotten those words. See, my uncle understood that if you wanna follow Jesus, you gotta get out of the boat. A call, a step, worship. What's Jesus calling you to do? What's your get out of the boat experience? And perhaps you're in that place where you are experiencing the majestic glimpses of Jesus in the monotony of everyday life, as Amy shared with us last week. And that's good. But let me just say this. Getting out of the boat doesn't mean that you need to quit your job and move halfway across the world. <laughs> it might mean that. But it also might mean staying right where you are and being faithful to where God has placed you, even when it's hard. For some of you, it might mean being honest and vulnerable in your Bible study groups. And I know that's scary. Perhaps there's some of you here and you've never placed your trust in Jesus. Welcome to your first get out of the boat experience. <laughs> Take that step of faith. Put your faith in him. You will never regret it. For still others, perhaps your get out of the boat experience is befriending a neighbor who's so different from you 
and sharing Jesus with them or extending forgiveness to someone who has hurt you so deeply. See, for each of us, our get out of the boat experience is different. What's your step of faith? What step of faith is Jesus calling you to take? There's this day that you are born, there will be this day that you die and you get to live the days in between. What are you gonna do with your days? What are you going to give your life to? Because each of us is giving our lives to something or someone. Doesn't it make sense to give it to Jesus? To say, I'm all in with you, Jesus. Jesus is better than whatever it is that's keeping you in that boat. You and I are ordinary people, but we believe in an extraordinary God, and that's what matters. I don't want to come to the end of my life and realize that I missed Jesus' call. I missed Jesus' best for me because I was too busy playing it safe, sitting in that boat. And I don't want that for you either. Aren't you tired of playing it safe? Jesus invites us to a lifetime of rich, soul-satisfying adventure. He didn't say it would be easy. He never even said it would be safe, but he said he would be with us. If you want to follow Jesus, you got to get out of the boat. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this evening and we declare that you are an amazing God, that you are far beyond anything we could ever imagine. And so, Lord, I ask you right now for every one of us here that you would help us discern your call on our lives. And then you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that as we do that, it would lead to you receiving the glory and the honor in our lives as we take a step of faith, whatever it is that you're calling us to. And through it all, might we worship you. For you alone are worthy. I ask these things in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus. Amen.